Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Tim Kay here, host of the Veterans Project podcast, founder of the Veterans Project and the Caregiver Project as well. I'm here to talk to you about some incredible folks who keep me living in comfort and style while I'm on the road. That's right. Hilton Hotels is a world-renowned, award-winning hotel chain known for their first-class amenities, authentic hospitality, and top-of-the-line commitment to your comfortable stay. The name Hilton has become synonymous with hotel. But did you know about Hilton's commitment to our military and its veterans? Did you? I didn't. To be honest, before this relationship unfolded, I did not know. Through Operation Opportunity, whose motto is, Our Mission is Your Success, Hilton Hotels has been able to hire 30,000 veterans, military spouses, and dependents since 2013 with a commitment to hire 25,000, that's right, 25,000 more by the end of 2025. Wow, wow, wow. What a commitment. To learn more about Hilton's military programs, check out Operation Opportunity at jobs.hilton.com backslash military. Guys, I'll be the first to tell you, staying in the hatchback, uh, sleeping on the road, Scion TC, starving artist that might have looked cool, cramp my style massively. I definitely appreciate having an award-winning breakfast, high-speed internet, and a comfortable bed. It makes my job so much easier with the already stressful work that these projects are. Blessed uh, that I get to do them, but it is hard work. So I'm thankful for Hilton. I appreciate them a lot. Go check out Operation Opportunity, jobs.hilton.com backslash military. Check it out. Our next guest was an elite member of our United States Marine Corps Scout Snipers, a group known for its scathing psychological impact on the battlefield. You see, to don the hog's tooth is to gain a singular status as a member of the cream of the crop, dealers of death from a distance. And although his time of close calls in Afghanistan's hellish landscape of Helmand Province certainly made a profound impact upon his life, ultimately the follow-up chapters were to be some of the more defining moments that have led him to a position as the digital content creator of the fastest-rising coffee brand in the nation. Throughout our podcast with Logan Stark, you will gain the humble insight of a truly exceptional artist, an eagle-eyed warrior who honed his craft on the battlefield, and through that same unsurpassed attention to detail and a project that would forever change his life, found a new path to possibly one of the most coveted positions in content creation. Folks, this podcast was a special one for me because I got to share passions with an extremely talented artist who's doing it at a very high level. And through our shared passions, we were able to find and realize that we had very similar paths to get to where we are now. So this was a special podcast. Sniper, creator, artist, and a coffee connoisseur. Here he is, the one and only Logan Stark. The Veterans Project is a comprehensive essay capturing the legacies of our warfighters, caregivers, and civilians who have stepped forward in defense of our patriotic principles in an effort to capture their stories and to never forget the staggering sacrifices of our nation's finest. This is the Veterans Project Podcast, where our legacies are the mission. Here's your host, Tim Kay. Welcome to the Veterans Project Podcast. My name is Tim Kay. I'm your host as always. We're here with a very beautiful man. Oh, thank you. Gosh, <laughs> just starting off heavy 
right off the bat. I like yeah. It. yeah. <laughs> this is how us creatives do it, man. <laughs> we got Logan Stark on the podcast. Cre- what would you call yourself? Creative guru? Genius? Yeah, I am. Jack uh, of all trades? Yeah, I, I like pinning it down a little bit at least. Um, probably a purveyor of, mm. of digital goodness. Purveyor. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm but, already happy with this podcast. Yeah, my uh, my official title right now is Editor-in-Chief for Black Rifle Coffee. Okay. So, Logan, you know, obviously with these pro- with these uh, podcasts and with the project, we go back through, you know, history, talk a lot about what led that guy to his track and where he's at. So can you go back a little bit, back to the childhood of Logan Stark, and uh, no matter how dark that was. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, just talk a little bit about what led you, you know, into the Marine Corps and, and kind of why you made that decision. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I kind of a small town boy, like Greenville, Michigan, the town I grew up in is like 8,000 people not a whole lot going on there, you know, like my dad was one of those people that cruised this strip when he was growing up. It was like one of those, I think, iconic places that you probably saw in American graffiti. And uh, a lot of that came from my grandpa as well. Like, you know, super big car nerds, super big gun nerds, you know, kind of what you would expect from small town America. Right. right? And I remember the night that we invaded Iraq I was a freshman in high school and I was super on the weight room train at the time, you know, like that's where a lot of my adolescence and my 14, 15, 16 year old life was spent was in the weight room. And, you know, that was kind of the whole initiative was just to like get big in that time when you're like growing and developing and starting to get good at sports and stuff like that and kind of start to pave the way for who you would be as an 18 year old. And then getting out into the world and whatnot. And um, when I, when it came time to graduate, like, you know, I think 9-11 has this certain prominence in, in our generation's mind. You know, everybody talks about it and it's got such a big story and, and pivotal moment as to why a lot of people joined the military. Um, when I graduated high school, I had zero clue what I wanted to do, but... I wanted to to get out into the world and I decided to go to school for a little bit. And it was shortly after I was doing that, I was like, the environment that I was in there, I was like, this isn't even remotely close to what I'm supposed to be doing. And I needed a drastic change because I I just felt like I was around, you know, not to downplay anybody, but I just felt like I was around ordinary people and ordinary situations. And I didn't feel like that was what I was supposed to be doing at all. Like, I got super to the point where I was just like, I have to, I have to become part of something. Like I need to have purpose in what I'm doing. And and that was like really this pivotal moment in my own life when I became super purpose driven as an individual mm-hmm. and taking a step back and looking at like, not just self, but making sure that as a man you're pursuing something worthwhile that you're going to look back upon when you're older is like, yes, I made that right decision. And it's very clear to me in my mind and my memories as to like, that was for a greater thing, something beyond what I am as a human. And after I started like, okay, I'm going to pursue the extraordinary. What is that? It wasn't 
something that I spent a whole lot of time debating. I knew that there was going to be an aspect of service and it went from becoming a law enforcement officer and it very quickly escalated into joining the military because there's a lot of personality types like that around Black Rifle where it's like, uh, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to get to the top tier of whatever that is. Right. I just knew that I wanted to go get in a fight. Like I wanted to scrum, <laughs> like I, I wanted to get involved and attach that feeling of purpose into this other desire that I had that it was like, I, I didn't want to just sit back and watch life go by. Like I wanted to be active in everything that was going on around me. Hmm. So I joined the Marine Corps, went in on a infantry contract, um, you know, boot camp, got into SOI. Did a speciality of uh, 0351, which is an assaultman in the Marine Corps. So demolitions, rocket launchers, breaching, like all that super all cool stuff. stuff yeah. you know, and All the stuff you want to do as a little boy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I get to hit, blow <laughs> up, and shoot a rocket launcher on top That's of exactly all this. exactly what I'm talking like, about, yeah. Every, like what dude doesn't want to do that? You're winning at life. Yeah. If so you don't want to do that, there's something wrong with you. I came out of that like after the first five months of being in the Marine Corps, I was like stoked. You yeah, know? yeah. I was like going into being a unit. I think just about every every Marine is like that, you know, especially like I'll oh, get to the unit, like I'm going to go do my job. And, you know. Like a lot of Marines, you know, you get that first taste of the green weenie. <laughs> and I got stuck in a weapons company doing the exact opposite of like all the training that I adjusted because I just got thrown in the backseat of a truck. We were a turret based weapon system now. There wasn't a need for breaching or rocket launchers or a whole lot of demos. So I wasn't really doing any of that. Can I just say that, ironically enough, that, you know, you're talking about this, that, you know, after knowing your career, kind of how that went after that moment it's awesome to like look back and laugh now right like, yeah <laughs> like i can laugh now about it but you know and you can laugh now about it but you know you realize like oh man i got the full marine corps experience yeah yeah especially like going Even the back, part that sucked really bad yeah and you know i i don't look at myself as anything special whatsoever like my fundamental like i'm just like a kind of a scrawny white dude you know what i mean like <laughs> I, I didn't come from. It's an interesting way to describe from, yourself as yeah. a scout sniper. Yeah. <laughs> I don't come from like. Scrawny white guy. You know, great beginnings. You know, I, I look back, I'm like, the foundation that I've been a part of is because I chose to pursue interesting life experiences and environments. And that effect that society and those pursuits have on a person, like, mold you mm -hmm. and sculpt you into who you become as a man and, and where you pursue and. And what you think about and what you do moving forward as a man. You know what's interesting though is I, I know you're saying all that, and I, I agree with that in part. But you know, if you look at a, like a lot of the special operations guys like Evan, um, you know, guys like you in a scout sniper position, you know, guys like the Tim Kennedys of the world, or you know, the Nate Boyers, whoever, they come from pretty regular beginnings. Like I think it was Nate who was like talking actively all the time about. Dude, I wasn't the fastest. I wasn't the most athletic. I definitely could not jump the highest. I couldn't do any of those things. But the one thing that I had is I never quit. And like you coming from your background, sounds like you came from a very resilient background, you know, kind of Americana, you know, type of home with, you know, parents that probably cared about you a lot and really raised you very well with very high standards. And then you take that into your Marine Corps career. And of course you have success. Yeah, you know, I, I I think you're absolutely right. And I think those humble beginnings kind of provide 
and play off of that childhood curiosity, you know, like I was always had my nose in a book and I was always like looking at like what's out there. Like this world is so big and there's so much going on. Like I have to go pursue those things. You know, my, my grandparents have lived in the same house for 50 plus years you know Mm. i think the the most my grandparents did too yeah yeah, i think the most traveling they did was like going to niagara falls for their honeymoon you know (laughs) i don't i can't tell you the last time they left the state and i have such the opposite inside of me like i i can't even stay in the same room for like more than an hour what was that first deployment like for you it was again not what i was expecting yeah but the first one was a float on the uss pearl harbor uh which i as an american had a really cool moment there where i was you know we pulled into pearl harbor on the uss pearl harbor like oh wow being a marine out on the on the deck when we pulled in there that was like like a really awesome, like I'm super proud to be an American. Like 3,000 people got to experience that. And, th- and that's it. You know what I mean? Like I look back on my military career, like that's a super cool moment that I got to start off with. Like, Dude, that's a foundational moment. Yeah, especially like you said, you know, it's funny you said the adventure aspect to it because like when you go into the Marine Corps recruiter, like they make you pick like from a block of like 10 adjectives about like what you want to get out of the Marine Corps. Right. And mm-hmm. adventure was one of those things that I picked and right away to experience that off the bat was affirmation that I was making the right decisions. Right. And from a very early stage, start thinking about what I wanted out of the Marine Corps and, and what the next pursuit was. And again, that mentality of if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do the top tier of that thing. And I had this great mentor, uh, Lieutenant Cassidy at the time, who had been a scout sniper as an enlisted and had been in Fallujah in 04 during the push. And he took me under his wing and he said, I think that you should pursue becoming a scout sniper or thinking about it. And I'm going to give you these resources and you as a person like kind of fit the mold for what they're looking for. So that whole first deployment, like I was in study prep mode. And being on a ship, like anybody that's done that, like I came off of that thing in the best shape of my life. Like I won the the ship grappling tournament. Like I was in peak, I could run seven miles at a seven minute pace. Like I came off of that just like ready, ripping, ready to go. Knocked the the sniper indoctrination out of the park, which was five days with very little sleep. uh, Very little food. That's tough though, right? Like... Yeah. Insanely tough. That's, I think that was just as difficult doing as like the larger sniper school because you don't, outside of you're really tested as a Marine in a physical and mental way, like it was, hey, you're on an hour of sleep. Do you have the scout sniper definition memorized yet? And you're like, mm. uh, you know, you're stressing your brain out on top of all the physical stuff that you're going through. Uh, and so that was that was a really fun first challenge to come out of. And I got stuck as an assistant team leader right out of the gate coming mm-hmm. out of that. And then was fortunate enough to have a whole bunch of hogs who were on like the end of their terms. And we got this awesome prep course before any of us went to scout sniper school. And I think there was eight of us that made it through that in doc and we all passed school. Wow. 
Which so, is pretty rare, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Um, to have a hundred percent success rate in a school that's eight weeks with generally about that time, and you know, scout sniper school has fluctuated, but you're looking at about a fifty percent attrition rate average yeah. across the board throughout the years. So when I decided to become a scout sniper, like that's when it got really fun that you do as a sniper is just like this is why you get in the military dude like <laughs> you get to build a ghillie suit you get to like hunt people from your belly through the brush you know you get to hide and wait but also you get all this other training especially with being in the middle of iraq there's this huge urban element to it so mm -hmm. you get the cqb tactics worked on top of this stuff of being a sniper and like man it was fun being a 20 year old kid going through all that stuff man i look back on it it was like man it just rad like what a rad thing to do in your life you know rad is the right word for sure for that so when you got on that first tour that was that first tour after becoming a sniper that was afghanistan no i had another one in between oh you did okay yeah i we did a we did a short deployment ended up going to okinawa for a stint and then jumped over to japan for a little bit too and uh, did a little bit of work with third recon, so got cool. some reps in. And traditionally, doctrinally, it wasn't uncommon for a spotter and a shooter to get attached to recon and, and do different missions like that. So I got to work with the special forces, special operations aspect to the Marine Corps right off the bat as well. And that's when I saw, like, you know, I've, I've got a ton of respect for all the recon dudes and we're cut from the same cloth. But after working with them a bit, I was like, oh, like we're, we're the same. Like, I yeah. know that I could do your job, vice versa. And it was like, okay. And like, I had this affirmation in my mind, although I didn't go the special operations aspect and, and MARSOC came about while I was in the Marine Corps. But I had this debate in my mind when I was in SOI, like, do I want to become recon? And their pipeline was much longer. I wanted to get into the mix right away. And I actually had this debate in my head towards the end of the school of infantry. And I was like, can I go recon at this point? Like, can I still do that? And they're like, nah, dude, sorry. Like, you're too mm. late in the game. Uh, you would have had to ask to do that, like, at the very beginning. And we just can't. Like, you you have to go to a unit now. And if you want to do that after that, then you can become recon and start pursuing that. So getting that mentorship on my first appointment of and then becoming a scout sniper, I was like, okay, I'm good where I'm at. Like, I'm happy with the tier level that I'm at. And although scout sniper platoons kind of live in this weird gray area because technically they're not special operations but they're this attachment to traditional units but they're kind of separate and they're kind of a little bit more flexible about who they support so like being me you know one that doesn't necessarily like love authority and i want to be doing my own thing and i think i can be making just as good a decisions as anybody else like i found myself in the perfect place you oh know? you guys are the same yeah. <laughs> i still remember my buddy to andy to, i don't know if he wants me to even tell the story but i'm gonna tell it anyways so i remember my buddy Andy tell me about like he was at some uh, gym in Afghanistan and he had like a sergeant major come through and like you know ream him for like his haircut like yep. just ream him I have so, so many of those stories so he's like two days from now I'm gonna see you and you're gonna have high and tight you know it's gonna be looking good so like two days later he's back in the gym same haircut and that sergeant major spots him and he said dude you would have thought I ran the Olympic hurdles <laughs> <laughs> But that, I mean, that's the shit that we look back on and we laugh, you know? Yeah, 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 of course, yeah. Because I think part of being a that type of personality, like, I think you have to have a rebellious aspect to you. I think you have to 
question with the wordy and, and the foundation because I think that's how change comes about, you know? Yeah, you're you're a special breed and to be honest, out of the you know, I'm army, so I'm a little bit biased, but out of the guys that I've met from the Marine Corps side, you know, you guys have been some of my favorite for sure that I've you yeah. know, met. There's just a difference to your behavior. Very humble. Uh, there's a certain humility. You're pretty quiet about what you've done. Uh, but at the same time, you know, there's that, you know, there's that muted braggadoso, you know, where it's like it's quiet, you know, but you know what you've done. And that quiet confidence is pretty cool. Yeah. And, you know, that was something that was embedded uh, within us at the very beginning because we take care of our own within yeah. the sniper community. Which is great for the community. Yeah. And, and they beat us. They beat that into us is like be a, a quiet professional. Like, yeah. you know, do your job, do it very, very, very well. Don't be silent about it, but be quiet about it. Like, let let your actions speak for who you are. Yeah. And I'd still carry that mentality through to this day. That's awesome. This all kind of reminds me of, um, you're talking about snipers, which you were just talking about. It kind of reminds me of that um, Donnie O'Malley skit from, like, when back in the day on YouTube, where he's like, all right, and he's got, like, the table out, you know, and he's, like, showing, like, the logistics and where they're going to go into the village. He's like, all right, snipers. And he's like, where are the snipers? Yeah. They're like, uh, sir, I don't know, uh, doing sniper stuff. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's a perfect way to describe you. Yeah, it is because you know we like we like being that that force that you're not quite sure what they're doing all the time, but you you know they're always there, right? Like, yeah. They're always gonna have your back, which is like you know when you sit back and you think about what a sniper is, and especially a scout sniper within the Marine Corps. Like it's why probably what I love more than anything is like we're your cover, like, yeah. and that's why. Again, going back to why I was kosher with not pursuing recon and, and staying within the sniper teams was like, man, I think infantry boots on the ground is like the needle mover for the Marine Corps, like 100%. That's why it was founded and to be a force amplifier for those people, there's no greater responsibility within the Marine Corps, I don't think. And so yeah. I pride myself in like, that was, you know, I think I may have had the best job that you could have in the Marine Corps. And it's exactly what I had always envisioned, you know, to get to that top tier where it wasn't, you know, it's not braggadocious. It's like, I'm even in that role, like I was there to support and then getting into like, when we got to Afghanistan, you know, I think a lot of people, when they think about Afghanistan, it's mountainous terrain and huge ranges and a whole lot of elevation where I got stuck. We were in a, we were in a valley in a farmland and depending on what time of season it was like, you can see a hundred yards. Really? Crop lines everywhere. And if it wasn't a field of corn or poppy, it was uh, tree lines separating every 200 meters or so. So, so like, you got a lot of intersections and yeah, and, and a lot of a lot of rural stuff. It was just kind of like a, a farmland and there wasn't hardly any elevated terrain outside of some three-story mud buildings in the center of the town and we were operating on the western edge. Mm. And so it was interesting when we got to Afghanistan, we kind of, th we didn't throw our traditional doctrine away, but we had to adapt to how we were being implemented with the infantry. And so we actually started adopting, uh, we went back to some of the stuff and methods that they did in Vietnam. To where, as opposed to traditionally going out as a team and getting put in pre-mission execution and being overwatched for that, we would camouflage ourselves down to look like everybody else within the infantry patrol, but mm. still maintain our long-range capabilities and then provide support directly from within the larger patroller movement. What was that like being in Afghanistan 
and you know obviously things change when you get there right like it is it's not it, it's never quite how you think it's going to be right like you you're prepared but you're not prepared yeah you know looking back on it um you did this big workup cax in 29 palms like the devil's asshole that place is beautiful <laughs> like, i mean honestly you think about it, like it's the perfect thing to do before deployment yeah, right? yeah. like it's pretty similar conditions towards what you're going to have to go through from an uncomfortability standpoint right so right after we finished that we knew we were going to afghanistan and i switched units from two five over to three five specifically to go on this afghanistan deployment. Ooh, dark horse yeah yeah and it it's funny it's like they didn't give us a whole lot of information and our sergeant major this salt dog like <laughs> this bulldog like this short gruff guy who i'm already picturing him yeah you know Sergeant Major Bushway, who had been in like three helicopter crashes. Oh my you know, God. Just like a, a god to us, pretty much, you know. And he came by our our hooch, I think it was the last night of, of CAX, and was like, all right, boys, this one's it's going to be interesting. And, and that was kind of most of the information that we got. I didn't really have too much as far as, oh, these are the environmental conditions you're going to be fighting in, or here's kind of what the enemy is like at this point. It was it was kind of just like they didn't want too much information getting back to the families as to what was going on and then as soon as we got there we were like oh, okay this is why because yeah. <laughs> it's shit because it's shit we got thrown into the fucking fire they were like this is uh all i can tell you is this is going to be terrible yeah so there was one in a you know if i get too into the trenches on the the organizational aspects of this just tell me to get to the no 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 yeah you know i will but we uh the marine corps took over for the british in the area that i was at i do remember that yeah which was the sangin valley and then uh there was one marine corps you know gaz right yeah yes yeah gaz was here not too long ago had a super good conversation with him and Uh, so there was a huge shift of tactics that happened right in this changeover. And there was a uh, seventh Marine Corps regiment that was there for about three weeks. And we did our turnover with them. And, you know, we immediately, when we were doing our turnover, got the stories of what they called black Friday, which was on black Friday. And it was like this hellacious firefight that happened. And they marked like 20 Taliban within the course of this and got attacked by like, hundred you know wow and and then shortly thereafter that like we started getting hit with all these audacious ieds and come to find out the area that we were in was the testing ground both for development and implementation of ied technology for that region and we were in the helmand province so uh marja if uh you're you're into the battle space and and timelines of what's going on was uh I believe it was about eight months before Marja was north of where we were in in the Helmand province. And and so that was in the back of our minds. One of the guys I came up with was in that battle. And so we didn't, we had heard about that, but we didn't know what was going on further south of that. And so those areas that were kind of constant getting in ticks all the time, this is where that ID development was coming from, was in Sangin with the homemade explosives and to the degree that they were able to get over the metal detectors that we were using. So mm. primarily the pressure plates right. was the, the biggest thing that we encountered as far as having to deal with one specific 
object that was causing us issues. And they would rig them up with so much cardboard and really rudimentary stuff, some wooden pieces to it. And the parts that connected the circuit and the wiring were so minute that they wouldn't set off our metal detectors. So we couldn't hit the actual pressure plate. The only thing that we could find was the wire sticking out in the battery pack. So what they would do is they would string out like 20 foot of wire to the battery pack, dig this huge line. So if you buzzed on something, you didn't know exactly where the pressure plate was. So it was this cat and mouse game of digging all that stuff up, trying to figure out where the pressure plate was, et cetera, et cetera. Probably brought to you by U.S. or British education. Yeah, (laughs) and the that turnover was interesting with the British because – they encountered this IED solution that was so bad that they started setting up tiny patrol bases all over the place. Mm. So they had these little small spots that like one of them, you could fit maybe 10 people in there. Wow. With like maybe four ANA. Wow. And that was it. And like, you did not feel safe in that place like, one bit. Let me tell you. Imagine. <laughs> and and so we really started establishing our patrolling pace and we're like, all right, we can't do this. Like, we're not just going to hole up in these small patrol bases. Like, we got to get out, attack the enemy. That's what the Marine Corps does. So we started doing that. Well, the vegetation is so thick there that when they were laying in these IDs, because there wasn't constant patrolling, they there was an assortment of IDs that were less than 200 meters away from our patrol patrol base. So there was multiple times when like I'm looking and I can see our walls and our towers and right. we're hitting an ID. It's like, Jeez. what the hell, man? Oh man. Like were we not watching at night and stuff like that. But you yeah. know, it's, it's easy to have hindsight 2020 on that, but like, man, you just couldn't see anything. That veg was so thick. It was easy for him to get close. Right. And that trench system is so intricate, their irrigation ditches, that you could move a thousand meters and never stick your head up above ground. It's so, like going into somebody's house and expecting to know the corners better than they do. So we just, we got in a fight for months on end trying to figure this stuff out. You know, it was just one of those classic Marine Corps deployments where you're adapting as well as you can on your tactics, techniques, and procedures, but you know, you're, you're taking some hits along the way. What are those hits like for you? You know, when you're in the moment, obviously, you know, scout sniper, being a scout sniper, you expect violence of action. You expect to lose guys. You expect that. But in the moment, you know, of course it's, it's catastrophic, right? It's, it's torturous. I mean, there's no way to explain that to a guy unless you know what losing somebody like is like in combat. So, what was that like for you? It was frustrating, to yeah. be honest with you, because what, you know, our bread and butter is locate, close with, and destroy the enemy. And what that IED threat did was it seriously hindered our ability to move quickly. If we wanted to, like, not continue to lose people, we had to sweep everywhere we went. And that process is not fast. So you're trying to move a casualty on top of maintain security, and then also clear a route to go attack the enemy. Mm -hmm. So it's this much more intricate problem that starts happening, and you have to find ways to adapt to that. And a lot of times, they got really good with hitting us and then taking off. Like, we're dealing with traditional guerrilla warfare tactics, right? 
and they were also super good at scooping up their dead. So like we never really got that follow through with how effective we're being because we were getting in these small ticks super frequently going to go find the area and then there were nothing because it would take us so long to move that it gave them enough time to evacuate out of that area. And it was just, you know, day after day after day after day of this. Right. What, uh, you know, you know, you take, you kind of talking about some of the frustrating parts of that time in combat. What do you think your biggest successes were in the area? We started to extend that perimeter for what we could consider like ours really quickly and really effectively, even though it was frustrating that we had to move slow. Like we did expand our footprint quite a bit and, you know, as far as locating the enemy goes, we put ourselves at the forward edge of the battle space consistently, which just ended up bringing them to us essentially. Mm. And even though we couldn't move very well and effectively, we did a good job at constantly hounding them to come to us and then engage them that way. And then, you know, it was a, it was a constant perfection of call for fire, making sure that we always like had some sort of air on station or mortars or artillery that we could be calling in constantly to make sure that we're having this huge other amplification of what we're capable of. Obviously, kind of with this work, you know, in the project, we're trying to build a bridge and, you know, get over to the civilian side and inform them on what our guys are going through and some of the things that they see in battle. The individual side of that's important. What What's it like being in the middle of a firefight like that, you know, in a vegetated state like that? What is the energy like, you know, in a space that, like that? Yeah, you know, looking back on it, it's funny because I remember I've read a ton of books before the before during and I remember asking one of my drill instructors this question because he was uh, an LAR guy in during the invasion and you know had been in quite a few gunfights and so I, I knew that's where I was going eventually so I would pick his brain I'm like you know you don't have to tell me like have you been shot at? but like what happens to you as a human mm-hmm. when that happens you know he kind of spoke of this time slowing down this hyper clarity uh, this hyper focus and I remember that really well I remember those first times like when I'm in a firefight and I'm not in a good physical location like I don't have a lot of cover you know we're a little bit spread out like I remember one time specifically, uh, my role, uh, I was an assistant team leader and I always was the last guy. I got everybody six. Like I, that guy is like second of importance to the point man. Um, and you're, you're kind of on an Island, you know? So right. <clears throat> I was like, I'll take that responsibility. So I was always in the back and this one area we were patrolling out of, it was, uh, it was called PB Almas, And then we were, our sniper section of at that time it was eight guys was attached to one single platoon. And then as we were moving the forward edge of the battle space, we set up this other observation point. We broke our small team down even further and we're oh, operating wow. out of two different positions. Jeez. So that's where the OP two five, we called it. That's where a majority of the patrols would happen from. And we would do cycles. So you'd go back to all mess, go out to OP two five, and that's where a majority of like the kinetic stuff started from. Yeah. And my, we had a fires incident to where we lost two guys to shrapnel. Mm. And one of them was my team leader. And the other guy uh, 
<clears throat> was our saw gunner. And then we, one of our other guys got taken for doing sniper stuff and uh, got stuck on guard duty oh. at the main fob, which is a whole nother story. But Bummer. So our, our 10-man group was down to uh, seven people plus a corpsman, or six people plus a corpsman at the time. Mm. And so being that in that leadership role at that point, I was just like, I'm every patrol. Like, um, I'll, I'll take point on our side of things. Like, and I was just going on every single one, just primarily running out of OP25. And so, um, depending on what we were doing, who we were with, I was either at the front or the back of, of the patrol. And this one, like we knew it was, it was during one of the, the heavier times in the deployment. Like it was every day. Like I just knew every wow. single day, uh, specifically upon leaving and then on return, like it was a guarantee that we were getting at least two firefights yeah. and it was one of those days like you know you you get a super good sixth sense about stuff because you just you, you just like feel it you just know the enemy is moving you know you're gonna go get in a fight and i think that's almost better in a lot of ways like there's no questions and like you're uber prepared both mentally from a gear perspective from uh, a plan perspective do you mean knowing that you're getting going to get into a fight? Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I think it's like you're making sure you're taking extra mags. You know, you've got – you're making sure that you're taking a grenade launcher. Like, you you start to hone in your efficiency within this stuff. There was this one bit of stretch between a road and a couple different fields where there was just, like, zero cover. And, yeah, they waited until – and it was, a lot, or it was a bigger patrol that we were doing. I think it was about 22 people. Um, and a majority of the patrol had moved up quite a bit ahead of me and we were fairly spread out on top of this. We move at a snail space because we have to sweep everything and we never take the same route twice. Cause that's the best way to get hit by an ID. You know, this sounds like yeah. an ambush. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, I'm looking around and like everything is firing at me. I'm like, I know, like here it comes. <laughs> and then, you know, of course, immediately like start hearing the snaps. Mm. And, and I remember laying there and I was trying to figure out where the fires were, were from. I'm in the prone and I, I like look back towards my right leg and I look back towards my, and like I'm seeing the bullet impacts around my legs. So I think I could say that this is pretty much the worst case scenario. <laughs> And uh, I'm all right. I'm all right. And I just like start plugging every potential firing position and like talking on my guy over here. And it was just like something happens. And I think that was such a big aspect as mm. to why I wanted to go do this thing is because I wanted to know how I would react in those situations of the stress doesn't get any worse than that. Yeah. It is like you're in the life-threatening moment, right? Like how do you, how do you react? Do you fold? Do you fight or flight? Like what do you do? And to have that knowledge of yourself that you're you're a dude that fights, yeah. you know, and then to be in that fight and to like – It's as good as it gets. Yeah, and having all of your senses firing and all that. That one specifically, we were in that patrol to do a leave-behind element, which was a tactic that we started implementing quite a bit throughout the course of this deployment because it was always effective. And so the, the fires died down as a result of our returning fire, and then we got left in our – 
our leave behind position and it fucking worked to the queue. Like we sent a, an element ahead and like, I just started watching this movement of troops and then they started getting a tick up there. And I was like, these dudes are coordinating fires. And then it was like 240 saw like, and just laid waste to this. And I was just calling for fire and talking these two guns on. And it was like, this is why you're a Marine, like right. moments like this, you know what I mean? And, and to be a part of something like that, I, not very many people get experiences like no. that within their life and it changes who you are as a man it provides you an appreciation of life mm -hmm. that not a lot of people you know especially we were talking earlier in society today the world war ii veteran generation versus where we're at now and going back to like the people that i'm surrounded with here at black rifle when you go through those extreme amounts of stress and and you've found a group of guys that you trust with your own life and that is a mutual thing i don't think that there's any deeper bond that exists in yeah. this you know whole thing of being a human being you're on the edge of that blade and you've got that refining fire you know of being in combat in that moment living on the edge that fight or flight like you talked about you know and, and you're all those senses burning and you react well and there's just got to be this sense of adulation inside where you're like, oh, I could do it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we, you do go through a point where you're like, oh, I'm getting, I'm getting better at my job. We're being successful. We're not sustaining nearly the amount of casualties that we were. You know, the next phase for me that I needed to work through was like, okay, how f long can you push this pace? And, you know, I think back to the World War II guys, it's like, and I think about, having to make it through from the invasion to the end of the war like that, you know, that was a, a year and a half of just straight knockout drag out fights for your life. Yeah. Um, and, and it's at that point, you know, it's kind of just a numbers game. It's like, how many people do you have? You know, how, how many of these things can you get in before it's your time to go? Right. It's really hard when talking to those guys to be, to kind of quantify the amount of combat scene. Uh, because, you know, when you talk to those guys very often, you'll be like, oh, like, you know, any of the Normandy beach invaders that I've spoken with or had on, as a part of the project, you know, they've like, um, the Frank Denius's of the world, guys like that, who unfortunately passed last year, but an incredible guy who's part of that first wave at Normandy, that guy or at, at Omaha was, you know, he would say, oh yeah, that, that was tough, but the, the hedgerows were worse. And I'm like, oh my God gosh like but that was really long and he's like oh yeah it was really long and, <laughs> and then and then um i believe it was hill 514 uh you know when they got pinned down by like seventy thousand german troops and there were uh 500 soldiers there and they held them off for like seven days and he said i don't consciously remember going to sleep in seven days and he said and guys were coming into our you know trenches and we were just you know grabbing laying hands on them yeah and like that's Doing, like <laughs> you, that what? living in that world of like, yeah. I, I think you have to shut off like. A so lot I of see your what survival. you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Like you, you're officially like Evan talked about it a little bit about having to shut that side of himself off or was like, okay, I just, to me, I was dead before I left. Yeah. Yeah. Did it, you have a moment like that when you went over there or did you, or did you not really actively think about that? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Like. I think I think it was pretty early on. Like I just accepted the fact that I probably wasn't going to be coming home. I remember writing the letter home. You know, that's really hard to talk about to a civilian though, because most people never have a condition in their life. I mean, 
something may happen, right? You're on the road, get semi comes across the median. Um, you know, I was just my bu- a buddy of mine, Brady Cervantes, who was another sniper. Um, you know, and, and we had a moment like that and somebody died, you know, and we went over to take care of him, but you know, it ended up not working out. Um, you know, we worked on him for about 30 minutes. He wasn't coming back, but that, that moment happened like that. Not very many people prepare for their own death. Not at all. Or think that it's going to happen. But I think in a way that adversity is good in a way. I agree 100%. You know, I think you develop this intrinsic value of, of your own life and, and what you can get out of it. And you have this appreciation and this, this desire to, to make it worth it and, and to not sacrifice anything in your pursuit of the thing that you still have after you thought you were going to lose lose it, you know? Right. And that's what helped the thing that like got me past that was taking care of my guys. It was like, I don't know what's going to happen to me. All I care about is making sure that everybody else is taken care of and that I'm doing the best of my abilities as a leader to maintain these guys' life. And if you put your focus into that thing, one, your leadership skills are generally where they should be. And then two, you can put that other nugget way deep down and inside you as far as like, do I really care if I live or die? Mm. And that was how, that was the thing that I developed in order to get through it. That's awesome. Yeah. I remember actively being, you know, a team leader in Iraq and I remember actively being concerned about the guys that were under me, not really thinking about, you know, I don't want to sound cocky by saying this, but I didn't really think about my own life too often. I had that initial moment when I left overseas, you know, where I, I kind of did the letter thing too, but you know, I I was actively worried about my guys, and I remember that feeling of like selflessness, like being able to extend that kind of love to them. It was the most enlivening thing, but also the most frightening thing too. Like, like you know, ha- carrying that kind of worry by the end of the deployment, you're just like you know, when your wheels up off the you know tarmac, you're like, oh my gosh, is it really over? Yeah, I'm gonna wake up and I'm gonna be back on the ground. You know, like what what is that like? That sense of leadership, you know, and how do you how do you control that stress? I don't think that you really do. I, th- I think you just make those decisions in the moment to protect life. Yeah, and 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 still accomplish the mission. Right, know? man. So you get through with that. How long was that deployment? Seven months. Seven months of sounds like a fun time. Um, you get down with that seven months. You come back stateside. Was there a moment when you got back where you, you know, where you really realized what you'd been through? Yeah, it it actually started to happen kind of in the middle of that deployment. We took quite a few casualties right off the bat and you know, we heard whisperings um, from command that they may relieve our whole unit. Oh, wow. And there was a debate going on. To it was just, getting bad then. Yeah, they were just wow. going to pull 3-5 out and bring in uh, like three battalions to that area. Wow. And we had a, an amazing battalion commander, and he was like, no, absolutely not. We're not doing that. You can bring in other forces to supplement us, but... You're not taking these guys out like they've fought and bled for 
this mission, like you can't remove them from that. Like it would be so much worse if you did that. Can you imagine how demoralizing something like that would be? Oh yeah. If I had to go like home in the middle of that, dealing with that, like I, I, that would not have gone over well whatsoever. I almost feel like you'd have a sense of being beaten. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right on that. And so we, we started to get some communication back from home. I was like, you guys are in the news. Like, what's going on over there? I remember the Facebook post, man. Like, yeah. Pray for Dark Horse. Yeah. Yep. And then it was, uh, you know, we, we got back and there was like, you know, I, I think just about any Marine you mentioned sang into him. They're like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. Because it wasn't just us. It was another three to four units who were, it was not any better. We ripped with uh, 1-5, who a very good friend of mine uh, was in a scout sniper platoon with those guys, and like he lost two of his dudes on like his third patrol or something like that, you know. Jeez. And it was just years of this, yeah. and you know specifically that region. Ben Anderson, who's a, a journalist who was working for Vice at the time. So we've got a connecting thing here, and I'm about to say. Ben did a documentary called Jack, a soldier story um, on BBC. It's got Jack, my zone. And it was all about Jack, him personally in Hillman province. And like, he did like five tours there or something like back in the early days, like real early days. And, you know, obviously when he came back, he had a ton of problems, but Jack is one of my really good friends and was one of my connects for when I was over there. Gotcha. So kind of a Kevin Bacon, six degrees of separation. There. Yeah. And I feel like I love there, Ben. Yeah. There's a lot of that there. Uh, ben was with us. He was attached to a different platoon, um, but he was, reporting for BBC at that time. Mm. And so there was a bunch of stuff getting kicked out to BBC. It was really our, I think our story was, uh, for whatever reason was getting fed heavily in the UK. Um, and a lot of the embeds from reporters that we had were actually from one was from the London times and it was from the UK media outlets. I'm uh, just following the stories from where the, cause the British lost a ton of people there oh, as yeah. well. I yeah. think and I'm not 100% sure, but I want to say like a third of all the casualties that the UK endured throughout the course of OEF was in Sangin, which is insane. I remember Jack coming back, and I just remember on his Facebook post, it was like like almost every week, like, miss you, mate, like XXX, you know, and you're like, oh my gosh. like, And, you know, I remember messaging him being like, Man, I you know I saw your message on that guy last week. Man, I'm really sorry about that. And he goes, "No, no, mate. That's that's a different that's a different guy." Yeah, I was just like, "Oh my gosh." Yeah, and Ben Anderson is one of those journalists that like he has gone over so many times. Man, he has gone back. He's again risking it and again and he's, again. Yeah, and he he's done quite a bit as to speaking as to why he continues to do that, but he. He did another story for Vice News. Um, I think it was a five-part piece, and it was called This Is What Winning Looks Like. I've seen that. And so good. Yeah. So they yeah. went back to Sangin again, and it was a couple years later. And it was after we had – we were in the process of handling – handing the area over to the, the ANA, and it did not go well at all. Mm. And that – that documentary series is enlightening and it's disappointing. Like they go to a lot of the places that I was in and many of the, the patrol bases that we were maintaining or had set up, uh, had either been abandoned or mm. turned over. Like 
It's, was this this is what winning looks like? Was that that series that you're talking about right now? Yeah, is that it? Okay, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah, I remember them in particular talking to some of the Marines. Uh, what do you call it? The embedded the the embedded tactical trainers, the ETTs, right? Yep. I yeah. remember them talking to the guys and just like them getting on the other side of the camera and being like, can't, "Yeah, we can't handle these guys." Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I specifically remember. Uh, been talking to one major who was trying to handle the the takeover for the ANA and he that dude was just defeated man oh, yeah. he, he he was i think he deep down knew it was a lost cause you yeah. know and obviously he wasn't saying that whatsoever but you could tell by what the guy was going through and the tasks that he had in front of him trying to get this turnover to the ANA and like get them up to speed on how to deal with this IED threat because, you know, the Taliban weren't that diligent in their emplacement of these things. Like, civilians were getting hit constantly. Right. Because they don't care. No, I think, like, that was my first IED experience was the day that I got to the patrol base. Um, like, I was literally getting the, the tour around the edge of the, the patrol base, and we hear an explosion. And this herd of goats was going through a field. One of them stepped on an ID, went off, took off a good chunk of the farmer's son's legs, oh, and geez. they bring him to us. Our corpsman's working on him. The dad is trying to finagle his goat herd, and the interpreter is saying to the dad, like, we're going to take him to the main hospital on the fob. Like you got to go with him. Like you got to get ready to go in the helicopter. And the dad's like, nah, now nah, I got to stay with my animals. Oh my gosh. And that was, you know, that's pretty enlightening from a standpoint of like, okay, what, like, what are these people value? Like, uh, you know, you, many of us Americans like couldn't even comprehend like a father not going with their son to get aid as he had just stepped in an ID, like it's unfathomable to even think that. And yeah. that was just the current status of stuff. What and a wake up call. Yeah. And then this major trying to, trying to figure out this situation and it not going well was, was, was a hard thing to watch a couple of years later after leaving that area to it's like, you know, okay. So like, what was, what was this all for? What was that like for you when you got back? You know, it definitely didn't help. In any means, you know, on top of like the, the mental things and the transitional things that you're going through. And, you know, to my fault, that deep drive within me to constantly move on to the next thing. I decided to get out of the Marine Corps after that deployment. I got back in April. I was enrolled to go to school. I got out of the Marine Corps in July. I was sitting in a classroom a month later at Michigan State pursuing a degree. And that was a horrible decision. <laughs> I get, mean, if I had been an advisor, I would have probably not suggested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, I was like, I'm going to power through this. And I was back in school a month after and back on my baseball team right after. But your yeah. experience was a lot more kinetic than mine and very heavy. So getting out of that mode, and especially because you'd kind of left school, right? Like not wanting to be in that environment, wanting to join the Marine Corps, and then you get out and you're back in that environment. It's like, hey, act the same. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's not going to happen. Your brain just can't yeah. switch modes right. that easy. Yeah, it, yeah. it just doesn't go, it doesn't work like that. You can't go from... All of a sudden you're in a liberal arts institution. Yeah. Life-threatening situations to becoming learned. Like <laughs> My brain was just not helping me out whatsoever how was that transition you know you t of course it was difficult but being back in the classroom you know did you make it <laughs> did you did you stick around for a little while or 
Yeah, I, uh, I stuck it out, man. Um, luckily, I had uh, a very good friend of mine who was on that deployment. He actually ended up moving to Michigan. So I had someone, you know what I mean? So that there was there was that aspect to it. But my pursuit for an education kind of started in Afghanistan because it was on the at the onset of this kind of media revolution that we're in the middle of right now, you know, like the handy cam, the GoPro, mm. the helmet cam, like that w- became a thing like yeah. throughout the course of my Marine Corps career. And it was before the Marine Corps like got ahead of it. Right. So like everybody had a camera and everybody was recording everything. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I, you know, I don't know why I developed this desire to do this, but like I, I wanted it all. Like everybody I knew that had a camera, I would go and get their footage. Like everybody, I just became this hoarder of hard drives and I just tried to collect as much stuff as I could. And I don't know, it's something about me. You know, I've always been a movie buff. I've always been into film, never from a making it standpoint, but I've, I've loved it. Like I've been passionate about it ever since I can remember. And I remember, uh, before I joined, like, waiting to go to boot camp, like I would watch all the old moto videos from the Marine Corps. Like you look back during like the films that came out about Fallujah to the old Power Man 5000 song and like to the let the bodies hit the floor. Dude, they were violent. (laughs) Like they got down in Iraq and I would just consume these things at the rapid. And I love watching the special forces teams uh, kicking down doors in uh, like Mosul area. And yeah. there was one video I remember in particular that came out with like that, that same type of moto music. And it was just like all these fast cuts of like doors blowing and them like kicking down, you know, these in, and you know, working their way through mosques, you know, with their typical movements. And you're just like, Oh my God. Yeah. There's just something beautiful. Yeah. Uh, gratifying about like seeing this stuff that, you know, the people that, you know, you support, yeah. but you don't really know what they're doing on a day-to-day basis. Right. Like, to me, that media was, like, consuming. Yeah. And so I I got this idea, like, I wanted to develop this archive and catalog. Like, even when I was in Afghanistan and I started making a wireframe webpage for what I, at that time, had developed the name of GruntTube for. Okay. And I was like, I want to start this website to where all this different media lives and like it's all these different clip from both Iraq and Afghanistan. And it's like showing you the perspective of the grunt on the ground. Right. That's like cool. it's, and you know, I, I had it all plotted out. Like I had the color scheme in my head and I started like working with my brother to like, I was like, how can we make this happen? He was pursuing a degree where he was getting into some web design and stuff like that. And like, it became an outlet for me to think about what I was going to do with this stuff. And so when I went to school, that was the the first major that I jumped into was uh, communication arts and sciences. And, you know, I switched my major, I think, five times total throughout the course <laughs> of, of my collegiate career. Yeah. Um, but it all came back to that footage. 
And I eventually settled on professional writing, which I know sounds super obscure. It's like, what the hell is that? But it was basically like a modern communications degree, communication through the form of video multimedia i'm a digital media major that was my bachelor's so i totally get it yeah probably same sort of thing you know the writing is heavy in the sense of um you know outlaying the overall communication aspect to it right right and the the mode i was in right now like i was i was questioning everything you know every decision that i had made in the marine corps was uh was gratifying for me. And like, I I found great dividends based off of those decisions going through school. I didn't have that gratification from what I was pursuing. So that put me into a sort of dark place mentally that on top of um, dealing with the fact of a bunch of my friends aren't here anymore and you got to deal with that. And then the science of the human brain and what happens to it after you finish combat. I'm not a doctor or anything, but I've participated in psychological studies at Michigan state. And, uh, you know, I've, I've taken a decent amount of mind spend to like figure out like, what is it? You know what I mean? And I personally have come to the conclusion that this whole PTSD conversation isn't necessarily one that's strictly mental. I think that in your brain, your brain fires and sends electrical synapses about across certain grooves in your brain. Well, you know, just like habit is a thing, routine is a thing, your brain develops these neural pathways that essentially get cemented if said synapse is firing again and again and again and again. Your your life is in danger. Your life is in danger, like fight or flight. Your life is in danger, fight or flight, like that happening over and over and over again. Your brain gets conditioned and used to feeling that and going through that. Mm. And it was when like, I had this super strange moment. Like I was alone. I was just driving down the road. I just knew I was going to die. Like I knew, like I was, I was like, I'm going to die. Like, What's going on? I know I'm going to die. Yeah. And I couldn't shake it. I was like, what is going on with me? You know? And you're like that, like kickstarted this thing. I was like, man, I gotta, I gotta like make some progress for it. And so I became mission oriented again, trying to figure my own brain out. Mm. And I, and I found a lot of purpose and pursuit in that thing. Well, again, I found another good mentor in my life. Um, this time a professor, a very liberal one that was, you know, not the typical type of person that I would hang out with, but, um, this is so interesting to me, man, because I'm just talking about how like my biggest influence in the project was from Berkeley. Like, Very liberal. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, as you yeah. were telling me, you're starting like, we got a lot of like similar things story. here. Yeah. <laughs> is he telling mine? <laughs> yeah. This professor had an advanced multimedia course, which you have one semester to make one thing, wow. which is so untypical of a collegiate course that you would go through. Right. And I, I was working with a couple ladies who I had worked with on previous projects in the first part of this class. And you know, we all came to the table and we pitched ideas about what this semester long project would be about. And I threw a couple of things out there. And I was like, ah, oh, you know, I, I think there's also like a story within this PTSD stuff. I got all this combat footage and I kind of talked it through like some of the things that we could do. And like, I looked over them and like their jaws are on the ground and they're like, no, we're doing that. That is, yes, That's that cool. that is what we're doing. Wow. Um, and then we pitched that to the class and my professor, he was so excited about it that I knew that there was something big there. Mm. And wow, what a feeling. You you like 
I think everybody goes through moments in life, and I have the same feeling now being a part of Black Rifle. Where you're like, this is special. Like yeah. something like it's not like blessed, but there's some like aura around it to where it's like ah, uh, mm. like it's a it's yeah, it's got the Dynamic, it factor, man. you know. And I dove headfirst into this project, and I negated every other course that I was going through at that time, <laughs> and I just took off. And I went out and I traveled across the country with wow. with a tape camera that I barely knew how to function. And I just started interviewing my buddies that I was deployed with. Gosh, man. And it became this story of what we were like before we left, what we were like over there, the stuff that happened to us and what we were going through. I think it was about three years removed from that deployment. Wow. And I didn't realize it could be the thing that I needed to move past that part of my life. And I was going out and I was interviewing these guys like, dude, these, these those interviews were rough, dude. I'm sure. Like, I can't even imagine. To relive those moments that happened such a short time ago. Yeah. Like the awful stuff. It was, you know, there was lots of crying there was lots of revelation within it. And and then I forced my team to interview me because I, you know, I made my friends go through all this stuff. I was like, I can't like not do this now. Like I have to. And so I came back to the school and I took the computer out of the lab and I brought it to my house and I would have these huge editing parties where I would go through troves of footage and make the my two partners on the project like come over to my house and we would edit from there and i think we spent about three weeks in the edit room going back and forth on stuff and it was the thing that laid the groundwork for where i sit at today man and in the sense of from a timing perspective you know Timing plays a huge part in what I do now, making sure that stuff is being released in conjunction with important dates and stuff like that from a publishing aspect of content. Back then, I like I was just I was just trying to get through the semester, you know. Yeah. And it we released it at the end of the spring semester, which was about the beginning of May, and I was like, I think I'm gonna put it on YouTube. You know, I was I was tinkering around with YouTube. I had published a couple other things i i kind of interviewed one of the guys the guy that came to michigan with me a couple other times he was shot in the head oh geez had the bullet ricochet around the inside of his kevlar helmet was totally fine after that wow and so <laughs> i stuck him in the basement of the house we were living in and i put a gopro on a stack of pizza boxes and you know we had a couple beers and talked about the that we went through they're horrible videos but <laughs> Yeah, my, most relaxed way to do yeah, it. Maybe we should get a drink right now. Actually, <laughs> um, and we dropped it right before Memorial Day. Wow! And the the school promoted it a little bit, and then like, dude, a couple weeks later, um, the Detroit Free Pass. Like, I I woke up one Saturday, and one of my buddies sends me a message. He's like, dude, you're on the front page of the Free Press. <laughs> And oh I was like, gosh. huh? You know, I was like, well, then I, I look at my phone and I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> like what? What? <laughs> and like a day later, it's on the front page of USA Today. Jeez, man. And I'm like, what happened? Like what just happened? And, and then that was like the New York Times wow. wanted me to write a blog post. And then like, I went on all these 
radio shows and I was just like, I just made this thing like as a memorial for my friends. And like, it had this impact like yeah. upon millions upon millions of people. And I was like, holy shit. And it, and it played back to that thing. Like I knew I was like, ah, this is something. Yeah. And it was proven by like what happened to that thing afterward. If you want to keep going down the rabbit hole with me, a couple of weeks after that comes out, I get reached out to from Funker530, which was this page that posted combat types of videos. Crazy right? cool combat footage, yeah. Crazy cool. They were like the Facebook page, yeah. right? Like As you were going back through some of your stuff, I remembered like that's exactly what I was doing. I was watching a lot of the British trips to Helmand like before my deployment. Yeah. I remember I was like messaging some of those guys I'd found and be like, hey, you guys have any advice for going overseas? And like most of them were like, just don't get killed, mate. Like, yeah. <laughs> just don't die. Yeah. And like, I was like, oh, well. Thanks. Thanks. Make sure you find Jesus. <laughs> you might. You'll need it. Yeah. Like, there's, but that that whole thing of like, that, that all these connections I'm hearing too, dude, it's like crazy. Because the same, same for me, and like, not to make this about myself, but as I was, you know, showing the last project i showed four capstones of four different veterans i covered and one of them was joe washam who was burned on like 50 percent of his body and spent 27 months in the bamsey burn unit um had his wife like walk in his girlfriend at the time walked in like six months into the relationship and like he told the nurses like i'm breaking up with her i'm done and like she fought past the nurses and like got into the room and she was like joe washam i'm gonna love you no matter what you look like and, like, he does not look anything like he had, you know. And they've now been married for, like, 13 or 14 years. And they have a kid. And, like, there's this photo of him hugging his kid in black and white. And, like, and like the connect, it's like kid was five years old at the time. And that photo, man, when I showed that to the room of, like, these liberal arts students who never really had a concern about veterans before in their life and never really thought about it. And, you know, and some of that's the culture. It's just the way the news is nowadays. And some of it's just, you know, not caring. They... You could have heard a you could have heard a pin drop in that room, man. And then I remember the standing ovation at the end of it and going, Oh. And then a judge from the New York Times came over and like shook my hand and he said, Hey, never stop doing this. I don't know what it is, but don't stop doing it. And he said, And by the way, I served in the US Navy. Thank you. And I was like, Oh my gosh. Like I had that kind of moment, man. I was like, I've got to do this for the rest of my life. I don't care how long. I'll, you know, I'll go to the grave with this. Yeah, I think humans innately want to uh, experience authenticity. Mm. Uh, and I think your project, uh, the doc film that created in school, like it's so authentic yeah. that it cannot be ignored. It's one of those pieces of media that because of that very true and heartfelt authenticity, like it brings people together. It comes from it came from your heart, man. Yeah, and you know, it allows people to empathize with one another. And especially when we're in a time where like people don't understand like our personality types or why we would want to go do something like that, it allows the other side of the coin to start seeing the pieces that are in place that led to said thing. Yeah. You know, I, it's funny because the thing that just came to mind was the new Joker movie. Yeah. And yeah. it's a brilliant film and you empathize with the Joker and you see his life experiences start to tally up that led this man to this moment. And you're like, well, yeah, it's like totally understandable that this dude would become the Joker because of what he went through. It was like the only way that he felt like he could survive and he, he became this thing. You know what that reminds me of in that moment? 
you talking about that kind of the Vince Gilligan's Vincent Gilligan uh like storyline, right? Breaking Bad. Yeah. Same thing, man. That whole build up. It's like if you explain the end of that story to someone, you know, at the beginning, they would be like, oh, okay, yeah, dirtbag. Totally get it. But when you talk about the cancer and being treated for cancer, and then he realizes he can't pay his medical bills, he's got to take care of his family, he's trying to figure out ways to take care of his family, he's a genius scientist who has been, put, you know, been kicked back to the bottom and who loses his company, he, he wants to actively fight the man. He's got that feeling within him, yeah. but he's never done it. Yeah. And all of a sudden... You under you kind of understand it. Yeah, you understand that you know a lot of times we're byproducts of our environment and the decisions that we make. You know, and yeah. and sometimes we don't get to make decisions and we're we're thrust into an environment and then we just you know adapt or die. Right. And you know if you adapt, you change. Yeah. You, you become different because of said thing, and a lot of times you become stronger in some way, shape, or form. Right. And that strength comes with side effects, essentially, whether that be good or bad. Yeah. Art form as an expression for you is is what? What do you want to see within the art that you make? What What's the most powerful tool for you within that? And what do you want to see as the as the byproduct of that? It's it's connection. Whether that is through the form of laughter and humor. And satire skits or Black very, Rifle doesn't have any funny videos. <laughs> <laughs> or our our super formal stuff where we're we're telling stories similar to what we're doing right now, to where we're like we're getting into the nooks and crannies of how these people came to be who they are and, right. and what part this their role in the service had to do with that. And I want more than anything people to know that the people running this company and the people that are a part of this company are like they're authentic and the the most important part to us is to let our audience know that we're one of them yeah. and that we are exactly what we were just talking about we're we're in, we're sculpted by our environments and our head is in the right place because in everything that we do we're we're thinking of the people that we that support us. Every single decision we make is to directly benefit the people that support us, whether that's by a video that makes a connection or providing a, a good product in the form of fresh roasted coffee or being a representative of our community and making sure that we're viewed as uh, responsible and good people for the society. It's kind of all-encompassing in that, in the sense that we really do want to be those lighthouses for what you can do with your life. Mm, yeah. I think about that often uh, in, in the scope of what you guys are doing, but, you know, in the scope of my own work, you know, of, of my team's work with the Veterans Project, in that I've lately really noticed that, like, I've been really kind of... I always want my art to be authentic, but I want to tell the inspiring stories. Like I want to get out there and cover the guys who are doing things that are very inspiring because I believe that builds our community up in a way where guys are, you know, not no longer sitting on the couch and, you know, sticking that gun in their mouth. They're no longer, you know, looking at that as an attractive option. They go, I've, I mean, I've received, I can't tell you how many messages since I started this, but, you know, guys saying, well, I don't know if I can get out of this hole. And I experienced it with my squad leader, one of my best friends and, you know, him coming back and killing himself that I couldn't have helped that. 
I, I tried, you know, there were so many days where, you know, he'd served in the Marine Corps and he'd done Somalia and then he joined the army and then did Iraq and Afghanistan or Iraq like five or six times. But, you know, he was fighting those demons actively all the time. But there are so many times where these stories can inspire and one little decision to get off the couch can affect a whole litany of changes. And then that what I think is so valuable in the work that you guys are doing is that, you know, just even those even small snippets like, you know, comedic things and knowing that you guys are relatable. I could. Hey, you know what? I can go out and start being creative. Those changes can happen right there at the base level, man, and can stop a guy from making a terribly tragic decision. Yeah. And I think it goes back to what we are as humans and especially like as children, right? When we're young, we have a very strong curiosity about everything. We have this hunger for knowledge. We want to like grow and we want to grow up. And I think we become grown up and we lose that curiosity for like what is capable and what our potential for life could be, you know, and we're, we're too worn down by our life experiences and it's, it's too much to look back and looking forward is difficult. And I look at the situation I am now and I think surrounding yourself with like-minded individuals who are incredibly driven, I think it benefits anyone to be surrounded by people who are like yourself and do not stop and sit on the couch and like pursue the next great thing constantly that they can accomplish in their life. And that, that starting process, I think we probably overthink. It's just, just taking the first step, like asking yourself, like, what do I want? Like, what do I want to do? If you can answer that question or at least start answering that question, it gives you that first directive towards purpose. Yeah. And then, you can't expect to like golden ray of light to just come on. Like, You're going to be this. Like that's, that's no fun. Life's that's no what fun. I thought would happen with the podcast. It never happened. <laughs> Took one of my friends calling me a coward to do it. <laughs> but yeah. And how much more meaningful is it to go through those hard times and yeah. then come out of it and then be proud of, you know, what you've accomplished through those dark times. You know, i that shit happens to me all the time where I'm like, there is a colossal task in front of me Mm. and I'm, you know, being a Michigan boy, I have this stupid analogy in my head of like, I remember being a kid looking at two feet of snow in the driveway. I got to (laughs) go shovel that. And that's how I look at projects. And I'm like, that sucks. You don't snap your fingers and the driveway is cleared. You, you do it one scoop at a time and just starting to shovel. Like you just got to start shoveling. And if you think about the whole process in and of itself, you're going to become overwhelmed and you're just going to be stuck in that moment. Yeah. You know, keeping with the, the snow shoveling analogy, (laughs) like, so I like it, you got to start shoveling. Right. And then after you do it again and again and again, you figure out ways to do it more efficiently. And I think a lot of times we undervalue the amount of wonderful life knowledge that we get being in the military in the sense of even simple things like how many times did you take apart your rifle and clean it? Oh yeah. Like can't count. Yeah. 
probably close to millions, right? But that thing became innate to you. It became a part of who you are. And that's the way I look at stuff now is like it's it's battle reps and it's doing it over and over and over again to the point where that thing should have been better by now. I got to refine my process. Yeah. And like now you're, you know how to shovel the driveway. You've got a good form and foundation for it. But then you figure out how to buy a snowblower mm. and do it even more better. You yeah. Know? And it's it's hard for me to see people who are like, you're just at that first step. It's like, you just got to do it. Yeah. Nobody else can do it for you. How many messages do you get? I, I get these messages every once in a while. And I don't want to say it's frustrating because I love I love talking to people, man. And I love talking to people. I mean, I, I often will just jump on a story or a live or whatever and just say, hey, whatever questions you have about being creative, bring it. I want to know. But like you know, getting out in the world and like attacking your passion. I, I love that kind of stuff. I love helping people with theirs. But how many times, I mean, I'm sure you get messages quite a bit, but it's like, how, how did you guys like, how did you guys like do this thing? Like, you know, I, I want to do something like it. And it's, you know, it's so, so often for me, it's been like, dude, why are you talking to me? I wasn't talking to anybody when I started the project. I literally, I didn't know anybody in the veteran community, my man. I did not. I didn't know about anything. I mean, I remember when somebody first mentioned to me, um, you know, Matt Best, it was like one of my civilian friends. And I'd been in the project for like a year. I didn't know. I mean, and, and dude, like, I, I don't know if I was like in a hole because that guy was really well known at the time yeah. with his videos, you know, especially Article 15. I didn't know anything about him. I was like totally, you know, I, but I was just working, man. I was just telling stories. And I, so I wasn't overly concerned with the overarching community. I just wanted to know individuals. So in that moment, it was like, for me, I was like, I, I, I remember saying, like, yeah, well, first step is, why are you talking to me right now? Why aren't you just doing it? Like, yeah, I think that's a great point. Trial and error, yeah. man. And, you know, to, to lean back on some of the stuff I was talking about earlier, it's like, you want to be, you want, you don't just want to do a thing. Like you want to do the thing to the best of your ability. Right. Yeah. And I think first you got to identify what that thing is that you want to do. And then what is that top tier where you could get? And that is that actually what you want to attain. And from there, like that's where the work gets put into like, can you always keep refining and keep doing that thing better? And like, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, being creative or building a coffee company or writing a book, like you, you just have to constantly have that introspection into your own self and constantly make sure that you're being disciplined in a refined version of what you're ultimately trying to accomplish. That's why it's so important for us to have purpose is like, I need to know what my fallback foundation is. Like, what is my guiding light so that when it does get a little bit dark and I do hate myself a little bit, which will happen along the way, it's guaranteed. (laughs) Happens to me quite a bit. Yes. (laughs) That you you have that fallback thing. You have your lighthouse. Like look for it. Like all right, I'm just gonna keep shoveling, and, yeah. and we'll keep pushing forward. So how has your direction, you know, within, you know, being a being a, you know, a, a content maker for this company? How do you, how do you decide what's going to go into you know into each project? Like what's the what's the overarching theme for you and like making decisions? you know, and deciding what you're going to put out there. There's a million things that I could be doing, a a million ideas that are floating around in our sphere. 
but it it's about asking and having that introspection into the company is like okay i need to focus on specifically right now like what's the most important thing what mm-hmm. is the biggest needle mover what is the thing that is going to feel authentic and communicate with our people the most right now right identify what that is and then pursue accomplishing that thing mm-hmm. accomplish that thing take an after action review of it and then start the process over again right so you're actively paying attention to the people that are following along with you and feeling out the audience as well along yeah. the way. Yeah, you know, we've created this really unique system of a feedback loop right now to where, especially with the way social media is like, your audience will tell you whether or not their your stuff is resonating with them. Right. You know? And that's a wonderful tool to have. And like I look through and, you know, for the most part, like we're doing a really good job. Yeah. And, you know, I, I take a great amount of pride in that. There have been so many comer, comers and goers in this whole social media veteranscape realm yeah. over the course of the, the years. And oh my gosh, it, yeah. it's it, wild. It takes so much evolution to make sure that you're functioning uh, efficiently within that crazy machine mm-hmm. that you, you can't be anything but adaptable in everything that you do. Yeah, that's true. This obviously Black Rifle is a coffee company. You love coffee. Yes. You authentically so love much. it. Yeah. <laughs> He's thinking about it right now. I, can I tell am. <laughs> Salivating into yeah. his beard. I, um, ju- I just had our new, uh, we've got a Peru red honey coming out next month. Ooh. And I just tried it for the first time and it's like caramely and strong and so good. Like wow. it's got a little bit of fruitiness to it. And yeah. no, I love, I love a little fruit. I, I, t- I tend to go for a lot of the African coffees because I know, especially with those Kenyans and some of the Ethiopians, they have a lot of, yeah. fr- they have a lot of fruit forward like yep. profiles. Yep. They sure do. Yeah. Especially Ethiopians, which is what this shirt I'm wearing right here. Oh, this is the our, machete goat. The machete goat. I saw that at the new, uh, Bernie at the new Bernie Did shop. You? Yeah. That'll, yeah. this will be the, the branding on our Ethiopian coffee. Oh, that's cool, man. Yeah. yeah. By the way, that place is cool. Ethiopia? The Bernie. Well, oh, the Bernie store. Yeah. Yeah. To me, the, the Bernie store opening, and, and Bernie is this small town yeah. uh, just north of San Antonio where we've got our headquarters here. In the, Probably helpful to explain where that's at, yeah. And it's also, you know, it's got a gun shop right next door. I noticed that. Of course. It's like, to me, that's like the, the like staple of like what we should be doing. (laughs) And I'm glad we got that one. I love that town, man. Yeah. I historically, like as a kid, I remember as soon as I could drive, man, that was like my thing. Me and my buddies would like go up to Bernie and like, we would just go up there all the time and like, you know, go to the river and just hike the hills. You know, it's beautiful up there. The good old Guadalupe. Yeah, good old Guadalupe. Float the river, man. Some of my best childhood memories are my dad taking me camping out in that area. So, like, for you guys to be out there, that's like, that's Texas. Yeah, it is. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. Like, I I love Texas. I right. love this state. I love the culture here. I love the people here. Yeah. And that Bernie area is ultimately where I want to end up someday in Texas. And it goes back to like those childhood roots I was talking about, you know, yeah. it's like, Oh, the Americana that's yeah. attached to this place. Like it just oozes yes. red, white and blue and you love it. <laughs> and yeah, that's it, so true. And to have like stuff like that, you know, that's a big step for us Yeah, you know, to have, have another physical presence. And, you know, we're trying to figure out like, what is our, what is our staple, 
example of what that coffee shop should be and look like and that that's it like we hit the nail on the head with that one you could tell it's an educated decision making process though man because i noticed like evan doesn't jump the gun on the whole shop thing like there weren't like you guys were already very successful you, you've been successful for quite a while now and the question is always like oh where's black rifle at it's like well you know i, I think you had a physical presence in georgia right like a shop in georgia or... yeah we've got a collaborative coffee shop with nine line apparel down in savannah right. Right, but no actual like just black rifle physical location. Bernie was the first, right? Like, yeah, we've got Salt Lake, which is attached to other, okay. but um, okay. and then we've got the Bison Union Coffee Shop up in Sheridan, Wyoming. Right, yes, Bert um, and Candice. Yep, yeah. yep. Uh, but this was like the you know our our first one that right. wasn't attached to a, an existing building that wasn't already ours. So the decision to do that for some would be like, oh man, that took a while, but it was an educated process. It wasn't there right away. Then you see it and you're like, oh man, he's been putting some thought into this. Yeah. That, that franchising stuff and the coffee shop stuff, um, you know, that's, that's not something you jump the gun on whatsoever. No. Like you have to make sure that everything is exactly how you need. Mm -hmm. Cause if you start that foundationally wrong, mm -hmm. then it's going to trickle out in a bad way. So we're, keeping the cards super close to the chest when it comes to physical locations because we have to make sure that it maintains that brand authenticity that like if we don't love everything yeah. about it it doesn't go and, you know that's across the board whether that's a product that we have a store that we're opening a piece of content if we don't love it our audience isn't going to love it and what's the point like what are we doing at, at, at that right and you know for me as well it's like you know, it's a tough, it's a tough risk because you've got so much success in the online, you know, in the online store as far as what you sold. There's way less, less overhead there. there there's way less risk. There's so much more that can be done. It's like when you open that physical store, you're taking a risk, you know, and you did it in Bernie and it's awesome. I've been there like five times already. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. There's a lot more variables to what could happen there, you know, and right. there's so many like coffees. It seems simple, but not to me. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> not after you start to study it. <laughs> yeah, and that's what like you went to barista school too. I did. Yeah. I did. You know, that's that about that process. Yeah, like you know, being the best at like this specific discipline, and you know, that was a part of it. Like I've I've done cuppings and remote farms in El Salvador. Wow. Or, like gone to coffee school, um, you know, continue to try and expand the palate. And, you know, I, I like impressing Evan with like, he'll, you know, he'll make a pour over. I'm like, is this a Yerga chef? And he looks at me, like gives me that like little gleam in his eyes. <laughs> yeah, look, it is. Good job. You know, because you get to that point where like, you know, I, I wasn't that way when I first started here, you know, I was, right. I was like so many other coffee drinkers in America that like their coffee dark, you know, like, right. Oh, I want my fork to stand up in it, you know, <laughs> but there's so much more to coffee. Say that. Yeah, I think that's the thing. That's awesome. Yeah. There's so much more to it. Like there's so much more flavor that can be had out of coffee Yeah. and people, there's this dialogue that's like, oh, like, oh, pour over is that hipster stuff, you know? And it's like, I, no, I don't, dude. I don't believe that at all. It's, Distraction. 
it's no no different to me than you know doing your own loads and for your six five Creedmoor, you know, where right. it's like I want to be scientific about this. I want to make sure everything is just right. I want to make sure the measurements are right. I want to make sure the pressure is right. And and then you start to realize it, and then you figure out how to do it, and then you expand your palate, and then your standard goes up, and then like oh I don't want that swill anymore. Like yeah. I can't even drink that. Like I can't even have gas station coffee anymore. I no, dude, I, I can't. I mean, I literally cannot do it. I mean, that's like why. Why, if you'll ever see like an energy drink in my hand while well, I'll do it because I've got to stop quick. I can't, I, I won't stop and just get regular coffee at a gas station. Can't have it. I remember when my mom, you know, was first teasing me about being a snob and then I first started bringing her home, you know, beans from all these locations around Austin and Hill Country. And I travel out to Seattle and Portland, do projects out there and, you know, and some of the, you know, typical hipster coffee spots that you'd think about, but had phenomenal beans, right? They care about the process a lot, which is awesome. So they would bring back beans from all these different cities. And my mom was like, okay, I get it. (laughs) And and it's just one of those things, like once you're exposed to it, like you're like, oh, yeah, I'm I'm changed now. And I don't think people understand the short short shelf life of coffee. Yeah, right. And how important that roast time is. Yep. Paying attention. You know, you've, you've got a window of... What is that window? 18 days. Really? More or less. Like if you want if you want it during its peak flavor profile, you've got 18 days, 3 days after it's roasted to 21 days is when you want to consume that coffee. So most of the time when you go to a grocery store and you just buy a bag off the shelf and you know for sure anything that's been flavored whatsoever, that yeah. coffee's past its peak flavor profile. Yeah. So now you're getting a stale version of what you could have had. Right. You're like would you eat stale bread? No. Would you eat moldy cheese? Would you have fish out of a vending machine? No, you wouldn't. You just no. wouldn't do it. No. So why are we consuming our coffee that way? Yeah. And that's why we've been so successful with the coffee club is because we get our coffee to you during that peak profile and you don't have to go to the store to get it. That is very interesting to me because I did notice like even, you know, I'd had even some of the same similar brands of coffee off a store shelf and then I'd actually gone to the roaster spot and even being here, it was Matt took me through kind of the roasting process and he showed me and then he, you know, and then he made some coffee from the beans that we roasted. It was cool. It was like I was at the Witty Museum and I was a 10 year old like learning how to do things. (laughs) And he showed me how to do it. And, you know, and he's going through like the graphs and all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, I love how scientific this is. And then he, you know, makes a pour over from those beans. And it was just like some of the best coffee I've ever had. The freshness of it, dude, was like mind blowing. People don't understand that until they get that experience. And then there's. To me, there's no turning back. After yeah. That. No, no, no. So the coffee side's, of course, important to you. How do you keep it even keel, like a balance of the content of being coffee and then, you know, also not neglecting your veteran roots? You know, the process of identifying, uh, I call them verticals or buckets of, of who we are in the sense of, you know, if, if you were to look up our, our mission statement for what BRCC content is, it's basically boiled down to three things inspire inform and entertain Mm -hmm. and we inform by educating you on coffee we inspire you by telling you meaningful stories that have impacted us or are us in some way shape or form and then entertaining you uh, through the the medium of usually humor uh but also spectacle 
falls within that, you know, putting a Vulcan cannon on a Prius. We would, we would, we <laughs> That's would, also humorous. <laughs> yes. We, we would tick that one right under a uh, spectacle. Okay. So it's making sure that we're kind of withholding to that, that lighthouse, yeah. you know, establish that lighthouse, write that mission statement, you know, go back to those military routes. Like what is mm-hmm. our, who are we? What do we do? All right, let's just stick to that. Let's identify it, stick to it, accomplish it get reps in, do it over and over and over again. That's powerful too, because spectacle and humor are such a powerful, are such powerful connecting points within the veteran community, within the military community. Yeah, absolutely. So you've identified those and then propagated those in a way that's authentic Mm -hmm. and you keep pushing into that. It's perfect. Yeah. Works. You know, when, you know, it's, it's fairly simple. Yeah. And you know, if, if we, we're to look at specifically the content that we're going to be dropping um, during that time frame. Uh, it's exactly those three things. You know, we've got Jared Taylor's "It's Who We Are" formal piece coming out. We've got a a BRCC presents on uh, one of the guys from Fifth Ranger Regiment who climbed Ponda Hawk during the D Day invasion. Uh, That's awesome. Who's who's also a part of the Best Defense nonprofit organization. Uh, and then you know we've got the the inform coffee education side coming through exactly what we're talking about. New coffees that we're bringing to the mix. Like we're, we're establishing, mm-hmm. like we, we are opening you up to a new palette of what coffee can be now refining that even more and opening up even better coffees that are rare from different parts of the world that we typically don't get coffee from. And then we're attaching meaningful branding to it. So uh, we started the exclusive coffee subscription service, which is a layer on top of the already existing coffee club. And those are super rare micro lot coffees that are coming from all over the world. And so the one that we're dropping um, is this Arabica coffee from Vietnam. And the branding on that is all tiger stripe and a modified uh, Mac V SOG logo. Wow. So we're... We're going to be educating and informing on the coffee side of things through this specific region, touching on veteran stories, you know, you know, honoring the old, the old squirrels, the secret squirrels who are operating in Vietnam in that sense. And like, you know, as I'm talking about all this, I'm like, man, it's super exciting. Yeah. The ability, you know, I consider myself extremely grateful and, and lucky to be sitting in the seat I am to like being able to communicate these stories out to our audiences and, you know, having those audiences continue to grow and resonate with people. It's, I get that reaffirmation that we're doing the right thing from our audience. And that's super important to me. That's awesome. So moving forward, what are your goals within this company? Like, what do you want to see come out of your work the most? I know that's kind of a broad question, but. Um, you know, the the beacon and the guiding light there is like, you know, we're, we're America's coffee. And, and we're, we will truly be America's coffee when a majority of America is, is drinking our coffee. And, you know, I think we tell these these more serious stories to do exactly what we did with uh my student documentary is like, I think, you know, a lot of times the veteran community is misunderstood. Um, and that's just because I don't think we as a community are telling our own stories enough in a honest and enlightening way to, to other people who aren't veterans. And, and I think by doing that, we kind of connect some dots and, and by doing that, we continue to grow. And so when we become the largest coffee company in America, like, that's, that's the goal. 
Yeah. Like, that's, you know, we keep doing what we do. We keep working through our processes until that thing is accomplished. That's, that's a, uh, lofty goal, but you guys have accomplished a lot of things within this community and even sticking around, you know, I mean, all the companies have gone by the wayside. I mean, you just realize how hard it is to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. And I'll give, I'll give Evan that one. You know, he surrounded himself with great people, surrounded himself with great people. And he has been the single largest factor in our ability to, to accomplish what we have thus far. Like that, that man's brain is, should be studied someday and (laughs) his, you know, his intelligence tied with, with his work ethic tied to his previous background. It is perfect combination of what this thing has become and in the reason that it has gone this far. Cause like, I'll tell you, man, it hasn't been an easy road. I don't doubt it. It has been full of ups and downs. Um, but I'm, I'm super happy to say we're we're sitting at a place um, better than we've ever been before, and we've got some really exciting stuff uh, in 2020 coming out that um, is going to continue that exponential growth. And I'm I'm just super excited about the future. That's awesome, man. So you know, we talked a little bit about um, art and growth. You know, you came out of a hard spot. You know, on that last tour of Afghanistan. Do you feel like this work, do you feel like a lot of what you've done within our community since then has helped you grow from that trauma and from where you were in those moments? Yeah. To be, to be poignant on it. Yes. Um, and it's, it, it ties everything back to what we were talking about earlier in the sense of like, I didn't think I was going to be here. And and now that I am here, what are we doing? Right. And, you know, I think about it every day. I kind of had a shitty day earlier this week where I was just like beating myself up. Like, mm-hmm. I was like, I, I'm like, you're not doing enough. You could be doing way more. Like, why aren't you refining this? Like, yeah. you, you need more discipline. You've nasty grunt like you need more you're not being good enough and like I worked myself into a hole but I look at that in my next day and I think I need those moments yeah I think I need those times where I beat up on myself a little bit and like kind of pick myself apart and not every day has to be good and I think it's 100% a part of growth is having that deep introspection to self to where you are identifying faults and improvements that can happen within yourself without anybody else. You do it. No one else. Only within the thoughts and battling those things that are rolling around in your noggin, that's the only factor that's at play here. And if you can do that on your own, if you can be self-sufficient in that, you are going to rise so much faster than someone, you know, who has to go lean on somebody else for that. And sometimes you do, you have to go do that because you, you, you come to a dead end where you need some sort of other outside advice. But if you can do that and you can identify those bad days as not bad days, they're improvement days, they're pick apart days to where you're like i have to be better i cannot allow this to continue whatsoever you look back on that just like look back on afghanistan like you know a lot of it was awful shitty like i wouldn't change anything i wouldn't redo a single day i wouldn't substitute any of those experiences i had because that hardship 
forms this mold that's like super solid. Right. And it's it's one of those things like if you continue to identify those hardships and continue to force yourself to be uncomfortable and try new things and have those shitty days, you're going to grow in a way that is maintainable within your own personal self because you have such a solid foundation of who you are. So I I had someone bring up a question to me and it was Zach. Zach had a question for you and he said, I'd like to know how he got with Black Rifle in the first place. Um, and I think we started to get into that, but yeah. we didn't quite do it. Um, I'd also like to know how he got involved in his career field. We talked a little bit about that at Michigan State. Have you always had an interest in creating cool and funny content or was it something that you discovered later in life? And where do you draw your inspiration for the content you create? Those are pretty good questions, man. Yeah, yeah, they're not bad. Uh, and that last one is something that I love touching on. Yeah, uh, yeah. for a multiple of reasons. But to go back to the first one, uh, how I got involved in this whole circus is, uh, you know, if you if we were to trace it back to the origin, it would be the film that I created in that class. And in the sense of, I I started working for Funker Five Three Zero, and there was a collaborative project that came about. Um, we were in discussions to do a documentary about Benghazi and we all met up in Montana uh, where there was a book signing for 13 hours in Benghazi Chris Tano Pirano was there and so I got to meet all these people all these like amazing veterans who you know we had kind of been watching what each other was doing from across the hall sort of thing and you got to identify these people who were doing the same things as you but in in kind of different ways you know what i mean like i think when i think about the formation of uh an sof team or a scout sniper team like everybody's got their own different specialities but they're they're experts in their craft in different different aspects right and then you put that together and that cohesive unit is like hyper efficient and functional right right so that's that's what I found myself in. And I ended up going back to Salt Lake City with Evan. And, you know, at, at the formation of that, you had Art 15, you had Black Rifle had just started, you had Funker 530, um, you had Marty Scovlin doing his journalistic thing, starting blogs. Uh, and then you had Rayman and like, it, w- it was all these different things that were going on. Um, and I just, I just knew that I wanted to be a part of this group. Like I had found that that exclusive brotherhood that I had found in the military. And I was like, this is where I belong. And a couple months later, I moved out to Salt Lake City to like start getting into it full time. And we've been humming for, for years now. And yeah. we all still love each other, believe it or not. <laughs> I don't know how you've been able to keep the band together. <laughs> it's great. You know, I think about that. I'm like, gosh, you know, there's so much talent that's flowing through these walls. But, you know, to quickly jump to the last question about creativity, um, yeah. that I think is one of the biggest adhesives that we have to this group is our our desire and our ability to be creative together. That is so much fun to do with all these crazy minds. You know, I specifically look back on the formation of Instructor Earl, which is <laughs> hilarious. You know, Evan's alter ego, yeah. who is 
the world's greatest tactical instructor. You don't realize how funny Evan is until you're around him. Yeah. He says, like, the darkest things sometimes. He's just like, <laughs> like, I remember he was like, want to go fire some people with me? And I was like, uh, sure. And he just walked around and told random people they were fired. But he was so serious that I was like, I would legitimately think I'd lost my job. <laughs> 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 Some of my favorite moments here at the store. Yeah, that's so interesting. <laughs> yeah. So for me, creativity like is super hard to put in a box. Yeah. You can't really do it. And can't quantify that. At the at the scope at which we're trying to do stuff now, you know, this is across the board, but you know you know, anything, any role at some element, whether you're in the automobile business or the marketing business or the content creation, like there's huge amounts of creativity because you have to make decisions about what you're going to do. Right. Right. And that's been one thing that we've trying to hone and perfect for, for a while now is like, how do we get those banger ideas that we know will resonate with our audience? And for us, it has always been getting together as a group to do something that is fun away from everything. Instructor Earl was a byproduct of myself, Evan, Jared, and Matt. We drove up to Northern Idaho just to get away. Joe Rogan was doing a show up there and we wanted to go see Rogan um, and we wanted to shut it off for a bit. And we just drove up there from Salt Lake and spent three days in the wilderness hanging out laughing a lot and it was on a long drive back through the mountains that we we just started having this discussion because when you're i believe true inspiration and creativity comes from a place of absolute happiness Mm. you have to have that serotonin running through your brain in order to like get those truly wonderful ideas when you have that in a force multiplier of 4x and you start riffing off of each other and you start laughing more and more and more and it was like it's one of those things to where you know a lot of i think our truly humorous bits are, are segmented little skits within a skit and we're in the middle of a edit on our new Halloween video right now. And it's exactly the same way to where like any one of these things would be funny on its own, <laughs> but together, like they're even better. Right. Yeah. So like it gives this opportunity for each person to bring their own element of creativity and humor into it. And then add to this other thing that was developed by this other person and then riff off of all of these different things. Like the Instructor Earl video, like we just kept firing like the most ridiculous scenarios that we could possibly think of, right? Yeah. And like as we were taking notes in this session, we had like 13 ideas. It was like, okay, in this scenario, you are a train conductor driving through the middle of the Rocky Mountains and then a cheetah in a bikini comes at you like a spider monkey. Rawr! And then he's got two Uzis. All you have to defend yourself is two belt-fed 50-cal machine guns and a hand grenade. Go. And it's like, what? What? So, like, you start riffing it, like, to, to, like, where can your brain go to be more and more ridiculous? And, you know, I think it comes back to those boredom moments in the military when you're, like, you're sitting around and you're not doing anything. And, like, your brain just starts going to all these places because... You open it up and you clear it of everything else that's going on. And so it gives us the opportunity for creativity to come in. Having moments like that with 
some of your best friends. Like there's that's cool. There's nothing else like that. And then to take that thing, make it, you know, execute on that idea, and then put it out to the world, and the world loves it. Like I don't think that there's any greater thing that we could be doing from a creative standpoint. Yeah, especially as an artist, because you know you're putting your, you know, you're you're effectively showing your baby, you know, to the world. Yeah. Like oh here it is. Hope you like it. Yeah. But I'll be crying in the corner if you don't. <laughs> yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's tons of failures on this road too. Like I've made a ton of stuff that nobody has ever seen because you know I thought it was a good idea and you know I saw I it. Kind of want to see that. Like it. <laughs> I but still, it's probably still funny. It, yeah, there's a lot of fart jokes and and videos that that didn't. That didn't get made, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I go a little bit too Marine Corps, you know, dark. Yeah. Like my sense yeah. of humor is very dark. And, <laughs> you know, the, if I had a quarter for every time Matt has told me, like, okay, Marine, let's dial it back a little <laughs> bit, you know? Uh, I could see that happening, yeah. <laughs> and it's funny, I, I think... The relatability's gone down a bit. <laughs> yeah. This, uh, like, core groups of creatives we have is super fun because within uh, who we are, like, you know, different branches are represented, too. So you, right. get, you got all these people with different experiences with the military all, all coming together. And, and I think that's a big part of why it resonates with so many people is because there's so many different things that a group, a demographic could relate to in different branches. Like, oh yeah. I'm like, yeah. And yeah. You know, like, like, it's in my brain. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's relatable. Yeah. That's awesome. So Logan, as you move forward, you know, in within your legacy, this is a question I like to get off of all guys. Um, how do you, how do you want people to, you know, remember you? within not not only content creation but you as the marine you know how do you want people to see you down the line because you know obviously with this project i've kind of made it the motto of the work you know the legacy is the mission that's something that's important for me because or, or our legacies are the mission uh you know because you know at the end of the day you're going to be looking back at the end of, you know you're going to be looking back at the end of your life and thinking what did i leave on this earth did i make it a better place what was I working towards? My faith comes into that a lot. But, you know, no matter where you come in your stability, you want to look back on your life and feel like you left the world a better place, right? And yeah. effectively helped your community. So what does that look like for you? It's a great question. And uh, it's it's creating something that I can remove myself from. Um, I hope in 20 years much like the American flag has such a powerful and, and positive impact on Americans, I hope that Black Rifle logo eludes the same thing. And to me, this the ultimate goal is to make this brand something bigger than all of us. So I don't really want to I don't want people to see me within it at all. I just mm. I just want to I want to grow it to a place of inspiration and, and work back to those like I want I want information, I want to be inspired, I want to be entertained and that that Black Rifle logo is a beacon for that yeah. that sits out in the world that you know is always there whether you want a cup of coffee or you want to go laugh or you want to relate to somebody or you want to hear a cool story like to me, building this thing so it doesn't need me anymore is is the ultimate goal. That's cool. You know, that, that makes me think back to to. So when I was sitting down with my uh, my best friend, who is now also my marketing director, uh, Blake, 
does an incredible job. He he did all my logos and designs and all that stuff. And, um, you know, I, I was talking about the logo and he was talking about it with me and we we're saying, well, what does he want to signify? And I said, well, I kind of want to think about upward movement, flight, um, you know, ascension from, you know, a hard place, um, reintegration. I want to see all those things in a V. And so he did that. And as I was looking at it, I want to, I said, I want to think of this, like what we're doing with the project as a movement. I don't want to be, you know, the best thing that somebody can say to me is when I get in a moment and says, how are you associated with the veterans project? So dude, I love that, bro. Like that puts a big smile on my face. Just yeah, like, exactly. Oh man, I'm glad you know it. Like that's awesome. Got, you know, have you read a lot of the stories? And it's like, yeah. Well, how are you associated with that? It's like, oh, it's you know, and you, you tell them in the moment, and of course, you know, they you don't you know act weird about it. But you're like, oh, you know, yeah, I founded it, and you know, I'm a photographer and storyteller. Um, but you know, I have a tremendous team behind it that does a great job with the work, and they're awesome. But I think you guys are very effectively doing that, man. Like Black Rifle, you know, it it is especially, you know, even outside of the community. I told you I didn't know about too much when I first jumped into this, but I, I'd heard of Black Rifle. Like, it was, a, and it was kind of in the beginning stages, like, and I'd heard of it. So now you guys are, you know, what, five years along now? Yeah. Um, and you're in this position, and interestingly enough, I think I started my project right around the same time, and you guys have now become symbolic of something bigger than, you know, just coffee. And I think you've done it through the multimedia, the creations that you've done and Evan and Matt and JT. And not only that, but the model within the company is so good that when you walk in here, you're like, oh, guns and dogs. This is cool. Like, you know, like people are packing and there are dogs around. This is the most Texas place ever. You know, like it's it's got a very strong feeling to it. Yeah, the, exactly. the culture. There's a strong culture there, right? Yeah. And, you know, I think of like the model that we want to aspire to is like, it's America. We love this country. Yeah. Like, we've fought for it. And it's it should be a continuation and appreciation of those values and the constitution. Yeah. Like that's that's where our head's at. And and I think we get a lot of our support because people like where we stand and what we believe in and and where we put our attention on things. And I you know, that's why I love it. And, you know, we are, we're sitting in, in the middle of that thing. Like it's got the it factor. Right? Yeah, and, definitely. And to be in the middle of it, to be aware of that, um, and to be super stringent and have a super high standard about what we're doing moving mm -hmm. forward. Like, I, I hope the audience can see it. Like everything that we do continues to get better because like none of us are okay with just like going through routine. Like, oh yeah. Everything yeah. has There's to There's no semblance of mediocrity in this company. Yeah. If you're not doing that, what's the point? Yeah. I feel the exact same way. I feel the exact same way within your passion. You're attacking it at the highest level possible. You're going after it every single day. You're going to have your down days. You realize that that's part of the TikTok. That's part of the, you know, roller coaster. That's just a natural part of life. You're going to have those ups and downs. Um, and some of those adverse moments make the sweet moments that much better. When you put out, you know, I, I put out a first project and it's like a release and I've got like, you know, some guy from, you know, D-Day, you know, and, it, and it's got that black and white band, and that black background and just, a, you know, perfect, you know, just shadowing's all right. And he's talking about that moment when he hit the beach. Or I've got that picture of Paul Merriman where he's sitting there in his seat and I told him to think about his wife and some of his best moments with her. You know, he's an Iwo Jima Marine. And he's looking out the window. He'd been married to her for 71 years before she passed. 
and then he starts talking about the hardest days of his life were when not on Iwo Jima, but when he was losing her to Alzheimer's and watching her mind go and watching her fight him when he'd walk back into the apartment and having her to take her to the memory care section and then saying, you know, Paul, hey, will you look at that window right now? I want to take a portrait of you. I want you to think about what your best moment was with your wife. And then there's a big mural on the wall behind him of their wedding day, which must have cost a fortune because back in the day you weren't getting photos like that. Right. But it's beautiful. It's behind them. And Paul's looking out the window. He's got kind of this small smile on his face. I said, Paul, look back at me, man. You're, that, that, we're, uh, we're done with the shot. And he said, no, young man, this moment's for me. <laughs> and he stood there. And that, when I put that picture on Instagram and I had people just, you know, messaging me and saying that they're tearing up and that, you know, because Paul died like a month after that. Knowing that, that that had gone out into the world and like I got to be responsible for that, like people seeing that side of him, dude, nothing better. The passion felt, you know, and you feel that you create things with passion. You understand that. Yeah, it's it's mediums in which we feel connected to yeah. others, right? right? Like, you know, we live so much of this life individually in our own heads. There's a huge sense of relief that happens when we find others that are like us, right? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. And if if there can be a big thing that we all support and it connects all of us, like we become stronger together. Right? Definitely. Yeah. Same way like you're wearing an American flag hat right mm -hmm. now. Like yeah. that, that is a, a symbol of connectedness for people and it's a positive one. Yeah. And and that's that's what we strive to create. This is Michael Rodriguez's Eagle and Angels hat, uh, Seven Special Forces Group. He's the head of the Global War on Terror Memorial Fund. He's going to be the one who decides what our memorial looks like and where it's positioned and all that. Uh, Mike's an awesome guy. I just did a project on him. Great guy. Uh, but, yeah, that flag is, is very powerful and very uh, symbolic. Well, Logan, uh, I think we've gone for six and a half hours. <laughs> <laughs> it does kind of feel like we've been going a while. We're at two hours, but man, it's it has been a good, quick conversation. I've enjoyed it a lot, and uh, I kind of felt like we would be pretty similar, but I didn't know like how many similarities there would be. So that's pretty cool, man. Yeah, it's cool to see the uh, the storylines connect. Yeah. Well, we've uh, appreciated having you on, man. And uh, for everybody listening to the show, you know, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, we know you'll enjoy this project, this podcast. We won't say we hope you do because we know you will. Uh, but don't forget that our legacies are the mission. This has been the Veterans Project Podcast with our founder, Tim Kay. Check us out at www.thevetsproject.com, on Instagram at The Veterans Project, Facebook, The Veterans Project, and Twitter at Project underscore Veteran. Thanks for listening, and don't forget, our legacies are the mission.